You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from Heritage Baptist Church in Corpus Christi, Texas, led by Pastor Johnny Chen. Our church is dedicated to serving Jesus Christ and reaching the world by going forward with the gospel. We pray that you will be helped and blessed by this message from God's Word. Isaiah, the Bible in miniature, 66 chapters as the Bible has 66 books. First 39 having a lot to do with condemnation. The last 27 having to do a lot with consolation very much matches with the first 39 books of the Old Testament and then the last 27 books of the New Testament. And how can you describe the Bible in miniature in one week or two weeks? This has taken us four weeks, the book of Isaiah. Up to this point, I think the the book that I had the most notes on was Ecclesiastes with 22 pages. Isaiah is coming in right under 50 pages of notes. And, uh, but we are going to finish with the book tonight with Isaiah 49 through 66. Now let me ask you something. What is the entire Bible about? Who does it point to, the entire Bible? So what is the Bible in miniature going to point to? Absolutely, absolutely. So let us be reminded. I'm not going to do a quiz tonight, but let's be reminded very quickly about what we have covered so far. Part 1 is chapter 1 through 39 of Isaiah, and it's all about condemnation. Chapters 1 through 12 is condemnation upon Judah and Jerusalem. They had an external religion, but no internal relationship. They drew nigh to God with their lips, but their heart was far from him. And that is why God began to allow these surrounding heathen nations to invade and pillage Israel. But instead of Israel seeing these invasions as a reason to turn to God, they took it as a reason to turn away from God. They start thinking maybe God isn't as powerful as he says he is. Maybe the gods of these heathen nations are more powerful than Jehovah God is. So rather than seeking God for deliverance, they start seeking to make alliances with all of these heathen nations to find deliverance from these superpowers at the time, Assyria being at first and then Babylon second. Through the ministry of Isaiah, God promises to punish his people for their choice. Promise to punish their idolatry and their unfaithfulness to him. Not to destroy his people, but to purify them and prepare them for the reign of his king. Because one day, remember his ultimate goal, in that day he said, Zion will be a holy city. You can mark it down, Zion will be a holy city, and my people will be a holy people on that day. All nations will come to Zion, and my king will reign in righteousness. He talks about that with absolute certainty. Now, in order to bring that holiness, in order to accomplish that ultimate goal, God's punishment had to sweep through his people like a fire. And that fire would purify those who submitted to it. And he called those people the remnant. But it would also destroy the people who rejected it. The fire of punishment was to come in the form of invading heathen armies. Remember Assyria at first and then Babylon after that. Assyria to the northeast and then Babylon to the east. And God would use these heathen nations to punish his people. But then he also says, I will also punish those heathen nations. And that is what chapter 13 through 23 is about. 
condemnation upon the surrounding nations. In that day, God says, all nations will see the weakness of their false gods and all will know that Jehovah is God alone and Israel is his people. Chapter 24 through 39 is condemnation upon Israel as a whole, not just Judah and Jerusalem, especially in regards to the horrible sin of their pride, which led to their idolatry. Those who lift themselves up in pride will be destroyed. Those who humble themselves and submit to God will be delivered. And remember, there's a perfect illustration of that in chapters 36 through 39. In chapter 36 and 37, King Hezekiah is besieged and Jerusalem is besieged by Assyria. But because he humbles himself and he turns to the Lord, submits to the Lord, the, the angel of the Lord slays 185,000 Assyrians in one night, and Hezekiah is delivered. Chapter 38 and 39, however, Babylon, this new up-and-coming kingdom, sends a gift through one of their princes to Hezekiah, looking to make an alliance with them. And Hezekiah then shows them all that is in his kingdom, remember? Look at all that we have, all of our armory, all of our treasury, all of this. And Isaiah condemns it and says, because you have done that, because you're seeking an alliance with Babylon, Babylon will one day come and take everything that you have shown to them. And it did take place about 130 years after Isaiah prophesied that. Part two is consolation. Chapters 40 through 66. And we talked about uh, was it a week ago? Chap no, two weeks ago. Three weeks ago. Goodness, three weeks ago. Chapters 40 through 48, consolation through restoration. After 39 chapters of condemnation, chapter 40 begins with the word, comfort ye, comfort ye my people. What we have in part one of Isaiah are prophecies of condemnation on the pride of all nations, but especially Israel. In part two of Isaiah, we have prophecies of consolation to the remnant of people that are going to come out the other side of the punishment, come out the other side of the captivity. Part one is what is leading them to exile. Part two is what will happen after the exile. And we're introduced to a man that God calls my servant, and he says this in chapter 43, up until now I have dealt with your sin by punishing it, but now I'm going to do a new thing. It says in chapter 43, verse 25, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. Chapter 44, 3, I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thy offspring. Show me an idol that can do that. Show me a false God that could do that. Who is God like our God? Israel would carry their idols into captivity, but God Almighty would carry Israel out. And that was three weeks ago, but my back is still hurting from carrying that boy. He is dense, I tell you. Chapter 40 through 48, after the 70 years of punishment of captivity is over and they finally learn that God is God alone, God is going to restore his people. Not because of their merits, but because of his grace. Consolation through restoration. Israel will one day be restored to the promised land. Now stop. They've already been in the promised land. But their sin took them out. So God is going to restore them to the promised land, but now God has to deal with the sin. Because if he doesn't deal with the sin, they're just going to fall right back into the same situation. So I will restore you to the promised land, but 
now let's talk about something else. Not just consolation through restoration, but consolation through salvation, which is chapter 49 through 59. And in chapter 49, we hear the words of who God calls his servant. This is the prophecy of this servant. And Isaiah talks about the servant's calling from God, called from the womb. He hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. This servant is referred to as the new Israel. And notice verse 1, God isn't just talking to Israel. He says, listen, isles, listens people from far. He's addressing everybody at this point. But this servant is referred to as the new Israel. Now, this is important to grasp. Israel, the nation, was supposed to be God's servant. They were supposed to be the ones who served the Lord with their life and therefore pointed others to him, but they failed in that. They failed in that because they raised themselves up in pride and they disobeyed God. This new servant is going to take Israel's place. If this new servant fails, all Israel fails. But if this new servant succeeds, all Israel succeeds because in God's eyes, this servant is standing in the place of Israel. And for a moment in verse 4 through 13, it will seem as if the servant has failed. Because even though the servant is sent in verse 5, it says to bring Jacob again to him, Israel will not be gathered. The majority of Israel is going to reject this servant. However, Isaiah then says he will not fail. He will one day be glorified and victorious because through Israel's rejection, salvation is then going to be opened to all nations and not just the remnant of Israel who believes. Sound familiar, obviously, right? It's the gospel. It's what Jesus did because Israel rejected, it was open to the Gentiles. And now we were brought in, grafted into the tree. But Zion said in verse 14, but Zion said, the Lord hath forsaken me and my God hath, and my Lord hath forgotten me. Israel at this point, see, Isaiah is talking about something that isn't going to take place for about 200 years. Babylon isn't going to take over uh, Jerusalem for another 130 years and then 70 years of captivity. This isn't going to take place for 200 years. So right now, Israel is saying the Lord hasn't, isn't going to save us. The Lord's forgotten us. He's sending us into captivity. There's no way he wants to save us. He's sending us into exile. To which God replies in verse 15, can a woman forget her sucking child? He said, they may forget. You know what? It would be easier for a mother to forget her own child than it would, than it would be for God to forget his people. He said, I have not forgotten you. Yes, you are going into exile, but that isn't a sign of neglect. It's actually a sign of my love. The Bible says, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. They deserved to go into exile, didn't they? They deserved to go into exile, but afterward, God says, I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. I'm going to give you grace. God would restore them, offer salvation to all. Their nation would be larger than it ever was. All other nations would serve Israel. And in verse 23, he says, for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. If you trust in me, everything's going to be just fine. In chapter 50, God reiterates the fact that their exile to Babylon was because of Israel's choice 
to reject his law. Look in verse 1 of chapter 50. Thus saith the Lord, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement? Whom have I put away? Or which of my creditor, creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities have ye sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. Wherefore, when I came, was there no man? When I called, was there none to answer? See, Israel's complaint in chapter 49 was that God had forsaken them. God says in these verses, I haven't forsaken you, you have forsaken me. Israel stayed by God during the good times, but they forsook him during the hard times. Now, in contrast, this new servant in verse 4 through 9 is going to be fully submissive to God even through suffering. Even through the hard times, this new servant is going to stay faithful and obedient. He would not be rebellious, he says in verse 5. In verse 6, he would give his back to the smiters. His hair would be plucked from his face. He would be spit upon and shamed, but still he would be obedient. And through his obedience, he would have victory. So in verse 10 and 11, Israel has a choice. In verse 10, Israel, you can either obey the voice of this servant and walk in his light. Or verse 11 says you can kindle your own fire and try to walk in your own light. But this is only going to bring sorrow. Chapter 51 contains good reason for Israel to trust in God's plan. They call for Israel to remember his covenant with Abraham. Isaiah says, look at how God has kept every single promise since he first called Abraham. This is how you can know because of his faithfulness in the past, this is how you can know he's going to be faithful in the future. Very soon God's salvation would come and this time in verse 6 he says it is going to last forever. My salvation shall be forever. My righteousness shall not be abolished. And in verse 9 through 16, Isaiah starts the first of three calls. What is the first two words of verse 9? Awake, awake. He calls for the arm of the Lord to awake, awake. Isaiah says, Lord, bring your salvation again like you have in the past. He talks about God's faithfulness in the past in verse 9 and 10, which then leads to faithfulness and trusting him for the future in verse 11, and then leads to fear of him in the present in verse 12 through 16. What does verse 17 start with? Awake, awake. Not to the arm of the Lord, but this time he is calling for Israel to awaken their trust in the Lord. He says, exile is not going to be your end. Grace is going to have the final word. What two words does chapter 52 begin with? Awake, awake. The third time. So the first time Isaiah is saying, awake, awake to the arm of the Lord. Come and save us. Because he knows that's going to happen. Then he says, awake, awake to Israel's faith and Israel's trust. Wake up and trust in the Lord. And in chapter 52, he is calling for Israel to walk in the strength of their salvation. Finish this sentence for me. Faith without works is? Do it again. Faith without works is? So if his people truly believe that God would save them by his grace, then they needed to live in that belief. This is what he's saying in chapter 52, verse 1 and 2. Put on thy beautiful garments. Don't be downtrodden. Shake thyself from the dust. Stop mourning. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck. Stop acting like a slave. Live in freedom. Live in liberty. Live in the salvation that is going to come. Look in verse 3. For thus saith the Lord, ye have sold yourself for naught, 
and ye shall be redeemed without money. That was kind of a confusing verse to me. So I found this statement from a preacher. He said this about verse 3. God received nothing when he allowed his people to become the slaves of the Babylonians. He took no price for them, and therefore he is free to claim them back without payment. He has but to say the word, and he is about to say it. In verse 4 through 10, God's people, Isaiah prophesies, will be set free from exile. God's name will be no longer blasphemed. Instead, good news will be shared to Zion. Look in verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings. You know, we have a word for that today. What is it? Gospel. What does gospel mean? Good news. How beautiful are the feet of them that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth. There is the messianic king of the first half of the book. The day is drawing near while he will reign in Zion. Isaiah can count on it. Look at verse 10. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. When their captivity is over, in verse 11 and 12, he says you won't have to escape. You won't have to run. You'll be released. You'll be able to walk out. No one will be pursuing after you. God will be before you and God will be behind you so that you know it is God. Verse 13 through 15, God's servant will be exalted and extolled and be very high. Notice this. See if you catch this in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. But then look in verse 14. As many were astonished at thee, he's talking to Israel, as many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man. That doesn't make sense. In verse 13, God's servant will be exalted and extolled and very, be very high. In verse 14, God says his servant will be brought down very low. Lower than Israel was ever brought low. As much as they were astonished at Israel's bringing low, they're going to be more astonished at this servant. His visage is going to be more marred than any other man. Look in verse 14, the end of it. And his form more than the sons of men, verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Who ever heard of someone being exalted through suffering? Who ever heard of someone being made very high by first being made very low? How is this servant going to save Israel if he is brought lower than Israel ever was? The arm of the Lord is supposed to be revealed, right? Salvation is supposed to come to Israel, but now Isaiah is talking about this servant who is going to suffer. And that is why chapter 53 begins with those two questions that are so familiar to us. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? This suffering servant, that is the arm of the Lord? How is anyone supposed to believe that? In verse 1 through 12, the suffering of the servant is detailed. He has no beauty that Israel would desire him. Now think about this. Israel wants a king. 
Someone high, someone strong, someone lifted up. This servant has no form or comeliness. He was despised and rejected of men. His own people would esteem him not. Why? Why does the servant have to suffer this way? Why did Israel have to suffer? Israel had to suffer because of their own sins. So what is this servant going to have to do to suffer more than Israel ever had to suffer? But the Bible says he's going to do nothing. He will do nothing to deserve his own suffering. He will suffer for man's sins. He will suffer for man's griefs. He will carry man's sorrows. He will be wounded for man's transgressions. Verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. But even through this servant's suffering, and even though it will come from nothing that he has done, he won't open his mouth to complain. He'll submit to God's will. He'll be obedient to it. And through the death of the servant, God's wrath upon man's sin will be satisfied. But then suddenly in verse 12, the servant is alive again. He very obviously dies in verse, 11, uh, verse 1 through 11, but then in verse 12, he's alive again. And the Bible says that God promises to divide him a portion with the great. This servant is a paradox. Through death, he will swallow up death and victory. Through pain, he will prosper. Through travail, he will triumph. Through humility, he will be exalted. Through suffering, he would bring salvation. Chapter 54 then calls for Israel to rejoice. Israel would be a greater nation than ever before. Even the Gentiles will join Israel. Their future victory will be so great that they won't even remember their past reproach. Look in verse 7 and 8 of chapter 54. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord, thy Redeemer. God compares the exile to Noah's flood. He says, just as I promise never to flood the earth again, after this I promise I will never again forsake my people. The mountains will fall before his promises would fail them. Israel would be established in righteousness. No weapon formed against his people would prosper. And with such a great promise of salvation set before them, Israel, Isaiah pleads for his people in chapter 55 to trust God's plan for their salvation. He says in verse 1, you're thirsty, come and drink. You're hungry, come and eat for free. Teenage boys like that one. Come and eat for free. Come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Seek the Lord while he may be found, he says in verse 6. Call ye upon him when he is near. You may not understand it, but he will abundantly pardon and have mercy. Trust in God's word, it's always true. And if you trust in God's word, then live according to his commandments, he says in verse, uh, chapter 56. Keep judgment, do justice, keep the Sabbath day holy, keep your hand from doing evil. All who trust in God will be saved. Even the stranger will be accepted into the family. Even the eunuch will be given an inheritance better than sons and daughters. For my house, in verse 7 he says, shall be called a house of prayer for all people. But hold up. This is not the message that the majority of prophets are preaching in Israel right now. 
Certainly you had some voices of truth like Isaiah and like Jeremiah and Hosea and, and Amos and Micah. But the vast majority of prophets were telling the Israelites everything's good. Everything's fine. God calls them dumb and greedy dogs in verse 10 and 11. He calls them shepherds that cannot understand. They cannot understand that they are there to watch for the sheep. The sheep are not there to feed them. Too many pastors are more worried about getting the fleece than they are taking care of the sheep. And God condemns these prophets in chapter 57. He says in verse 1 and 2, Their influence has made Israel blind to the righteous people among them. In verse 3 through 6, he says these false prophets have led God's people to worship idols. Verse 7, they have made God's people prideful. Verse 8 through 11, they've caused Israel to seek for alliances with man instead of seeking God. And yet for some strange reason, whenever their plans fail, which every time they sought to make an alliance with man, it failed them. And yet every single time it failed, they didn't get discouraged. They just kept on going. They kept on going in their own way trusting in their own way, even though it brought them no good. Look in chapter 57, verse 12 and 13. I will declare thy righteousness in thy works, for they shall not profit thee. When thou criest, let thy companies deliver thee. All these people you're seeking to make alliances with, call out to them when you're in trouble. But the wind shall carry them all away, vanity shall take them. But he that putteth his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. God will have no part with such pride and stubbornness. Even though he is high and lofty, he dwells with the contrite ones. Remember, we just preached about that a little while ago. He dwells with the contrite ones. So chapter 58 begins with, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet. That's what a prophet is supposed to do. He's been talking about false prophets who are telling the people what they want to hear and not what they need to hear. He says, here's what you need to do. Cry aloud. Spare not. Lift up thy voice like a trumpet. Show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Verse 2. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and forsook not the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. And look at Israel's question here in verse 3. Wherefore have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not? Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? The prophets are telling Israel that all is well, and they believe it. They believe these false prophets. But if all is well, how come when they fast, God doesn't seem to care? How come when they afflict their soul, God doesn't seem to pay any notice? And listen, false preaching will always make people mad at God. False preaching makes God seem like the bad guy. True preaching makes us mad at ourselves and makes, it, makes us mad at our sin. But this false preaching that they had followed along with, wait a second, if everything's all good, then how come whenever we fast, God doesn't listen? And God answers in this way in verse 4 through 14. He says, what good is a fast when you live just like the wicked? A fast isn't just some magic day where you afflict your souls and wear sackcloth and then go right back to living like the devil. God is not impressed with prostration of the body. He is looking for prostration of the heart. God says, why don't you just do what's right? 
Loose the bands of wickedness, undo heavy burdens, let the oppressed go free, feed the hungry, care for the poor, clothe the naked. He said, that's what I'm looking for. Verse 8, then shall thy light break forth as the morning. Verse 9, then shalt thou call and the Lord shall answer. Thou shalt cry and he shall say, here I am. But because Israel had listened to the false prophets, they found themselves away from God. If Israel would listen to the truth, God would be near again. They had nobody to blame for their need for salvation other than themselves. Look in, look in chapter 59, verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that, ye, that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue hath muttered perverseness. None calleth for justice, nor any pleadeth for truth. They trust in vanity and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. Look in verse 9. Therefore is judgment far from us. Neither doth justice overtake us. We wait for light, but behold obscurity. For brightness, but we walk in darkness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as in the night. We are in desolate places as dead men. We roar all like bears and mourn sore like doves. We look for judgment, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. Israel alone is to blame for their current salvation, but it will be God alone who will take credit for their future salvation. It will be only through grace. Look in verse 16. Talking about God's servant again, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and an helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly, he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the islands he will repay recompense. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him and the redeemer shall come to Zion. And to them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. When man had no hope, God gave us hope. When man had no way to be saved, God made a way to be saved. Through his servant, this redeemer, Salvation is going to come to his people. Chapter 60 through 66, now he's going to talk about consolation through glorification. What was the first one? Consolation through restoration, then consolation through salvation, and now consolation through glorification. Chapter 60, a chapter written about 130 years before Israel would even go into exile, and yet Isaiah begins to describe in great detail the glorious future of the remnant. Of Israel. In chapter 59, Isaiah is talking about darkness. In chapter 60, he says in verse 1, light would shine upon them. Throughout the rest of the chapter, Gentiles would come to their light. All Israel would once again be gathered together. Nations will offer them riches and honor. They would have victory over their enemies. The temple would be beautified in verse 13. They will reign over the other nations. They will have great wealth. They would have great peace within and without. The Lord would be their everlasting light in verse 19 and 20. They will be a holy people in verse 21. Little will be made much. Small will be made great in verse 22. In chapter 61, 
the servant himself speaks about how this glorious future will come to pass. Look in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach, there are those two words again, good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. I wrote in my margin of the Bible, what a trade. Beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning. To be able to wear robes of righteousness when all we've been covered with before is sin, what a trade that is. What a savior. Beginning in chapter 61 through 10, and I, I recommend marking this if you would. From verse 10 of chapter 61 all the way to the end of chapter 62, this is Isaiah talking. And in chapter 61, 10, and 11, Isaiah is first thanking God for his gracious salvation. But then all of 62, Isaiah makes God a promise. And it is a promise that all of us should make tonight. Look in verse 1. For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness and the salvation thereof as a lamp. That burneth. That should be all of our attitudes. Isaiah says, I will preach until I die. He says, I'll train others to preach. He would do everything he could to make sure these good tidings of the servant would be passed from generation to generation until all God's promises were fulfilled. He did a good job of it. And one day, God's promises would be fulfilled. By faith, Isaiah could see it afar. In chapter 63, he prophesies about who he calls this righteous warrior. A righteous warrior who is, quote, mighty to save, end quote. And Isaiah sees in this prophecy, he sees that this warrior is covered in this red, he's covered in blood. And Isaiah asks the warrior, why? Why is your garment stained with blood? And he answers, I have trodden the winepress alone. Look at verse 5. I looked and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury it upheld me. This warrior king is one day going to conquer all of Israel's enemies by himself. Brother Bingham got it. You can whisper hallelujah, that's okay. Verse 7 through 14, Isaiah speaks of the mercy and love of God. Even all, after all that God's people had done against him, he still promised to restore and save and glorify his people on that day. How could Israel rebel against such a God? It broke Isaiah's heart to see his people so wicked. From chapter 63 through 15 to the end of chapter 64, Isaiah begs God to hasten his salvation. He knew that salvation was coming, but... When, Isaiah wondered, verse 1 of chapter 64, Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. 
He knew they didn't deserve to be saved. He says, we are all as an unclean thing in verse 6, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. But he asked God to come and save them anyway. He says, I know we don't deserve it, but would you come anyway? And in chapter 65, God responds to Isaiah's request. He says, you know, the heathen nations are all seeking me, but my own people won't. Look in verse 1. I have sought of them that asked not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. I said, behold me, behold me unto a nation that was not called by my name. I have spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people, which walketh in a way that was not good after their own thoughts. You know, it isn't too long from this point in the chronology that a little prophet named Jonah is going to go into a place called Nineveh and the entire city is going to repent. And yet Isaiah is here preaching for 60 years to God's own people and they would not change. said, heathen people are turning to me, my own people will not. They're rebellious, they walk in their own way, they provoke me to anger, they claim to be holier than thou. Have you ever heard that? That's, that's Bible. Look in verse 5. They say, for I am holier than thou, come not near to me. Simply because they're from Israel. God says, these are smoke in my nose. A fire that burneth all the day. And God promises in verse 6 through 10, salvation is coming. But it cannot come until the punishment comes. Because think about this. Through God's punishment, he would know who he could save. Now, I'm not saying that God didn't know who he could save. But he gives us a choice. He said, through my punishment, the rebellious would be purged and the remnant would be purified. Once only the remnant remains, then my salvation can come. So Israel had a choice. Would they be among the rebellious rejectors or would they be among the remnant of believers? Would they seek for their own salvation from God's punishment, or would they trust in God's salvation by submitting to his punishment? That was their choice. The same fire of punishment that would destroy the rebellious would purify the remnant, but it was their choice. The remnant would enjoy a new heaven and a new earth, God promises. Eternal peace, eternal blessings, eternal fellowship with him. And the book of Isaiah ends with chapter 66, emphasizing this great decision that must be made. Pride and rebellion or humility and obedience. Look in verse 1 and 2. Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me and where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath my hand made and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. The proud will be abased, the humble will be glorified. He who trusts in his own way will perish in his way, God says. He who trusts in God's word will be blessed because God's word is always going to come true. And his ultimate goal will be accomplished in that day. His servants will see God's hand, but his enemies will see God's indignation. Let's read the last three verses. 22 through 24. For as the new heavens and the new earth will I make, uh, I'm sorry, for as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. 
And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. What has fire symbolized throughout this entire book? Punishment. And those who reject God's servant will have to have eternal fire. Eternal punishment. Now stick with me just for a little bit longer as I try to wrap this up in a bow. Think about the paradoxes of this incredible book with me. You know what a paradox is? Or something that seems like an oxymoron like jumbo shrimp or friendly fire. A paradox, something that doesn't make sense when you first look at it. In chapters 1 through 39, you have Israel's punishment. The paradox being that the punishment is not to destroy, but to purify. In chapters 40 through 48, you have Israel's restoration. The paradox being... It is not based off of their merits, but based off of God's grace. Then you have Israel's salvation in chapter 49 through 59. The paradox being their salvation is not going to come by conquering their enemies, but by conquering their sin. And in 60 through 66, their glorification, the paradox being this will not come by raising yourself up in pride but by humbling yourself in obedience. And these paradoxes are why many people in Israel failed to listen to Isaiah's preaching, because it didn't make sense to them. They're thinking punishment is coming because God hates us, not because he loves us. If we will be restored to our homeland, it will be because we ally with a greater army. It's not just going to happen on its own. If we're going to be saved from our enemies, we must find a way to conquer our enemies, not conquer ourselves. If we will one day be glorified, we have to find a way to raise ourselves up, not lower ourselves down. But Isaiah's 60-year ministry is him telling them over and over just how wrong they were. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. So foolish, in fact so blinded by their own ideas and opinions that they missed their own Messiah. If they had just opened up their eyes to Isaiah's prophecy, they would have seen that God gave a perfect illustration of Isaiah's message in Jesus Christ. Think about part one of Isaiah, chapter one through 39. They're told about this king this almighty king who would conquer their enemies and reign in righteousness. Part two, they're told about this suffering servant who would be rejected and despised of men and die for the sins of mankind. The Jews could not understand that the servant of part two and the king of part one were the same person. They couldn't understand that. They couldn't see that. How could they be the same? How could a king suffer like a servant? How could a king have no form or comeliness? How can a servant become a king? How can one who dies conquer death? And that's why when Jesus came, they missed him completely. They despised him. They rejected him. When Jesus started his earthly ministry in Luke chapter 4, verse 16 through 22, he stands up in a synagogue and he reads the book of Isaiah. 
From chapter 61, he reads when it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me to preach good tidings to the meek. And Jesus says with his own lips, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. He told them, I am the one that Isaiah told you about. And you know what they looked back and said? Aren't you Joseph's son? You're not a king. You're a carpenter's son. You're not the son of David. You're the son of Joseph. Didn't make sense to them. They were looking for a king, and they were supposed to. They were looking for a Messiah to conquer, and they were supposed to. But they didn't see that when their king came to save them, he wasn't coming to save them from their enemies. He was coming to save them from their sin. In Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, what are they screaming? Hosanna. You know what that means? Save us. Save us now. That's what Hosanna means. And if you see the road, there was only one road that Jesus could have come down. And if you know how Jerusalem was laid out back in Jesus' day, to the right, there was the Roman garrison. And to the left, there was the temple. And here comes Jesus riding in. Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, save us now. But instead of turning right and going and conquering the Romans, he turns left and goes to the temple and makes a whip and starts punishing the Jews. A week later, they crucified him. Because Jesus said, Rome is not the problem, you are. And before I can conquer your enemies, I first have to conquer the enemy within your own heart. Because what good is a righteous king if the people are too sinful to listen? And that's why John the Baptist's job, described by Isaiah in chapter 40, was to prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And John the Baptist prepared the way of the Lord by telling the people, repent. And why did they need to repent? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This reign that you're looking for is here. Now, when the Jews heard the kingdom of heaven is at hand, they're looking for this this blood-covered warrior from chapter 63 who would defeat their enemies in one swoop, but they missed the blood-covered servant of chapter 53. Not covered with the blood of their enemies, but covered with his own blood that was shed for them. How did Jesus become the king of part one? By being the servant of part two. Turn with me, if you would, to Philippians chapter two. I want us to see this. Philippians chapter 2, over and over in Isaiah, Isaiah told them, if you lift yourself up in pride, you will be brought low. If you humble yourself, you will be exalted. And look at the perfect illustration in Philippians 2, 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And now all men are invited to believe those good tidings of the servant so that you too can be restored and you too can be saved and you too can one day be glorified. What are those good tidings? What is that gospel? The gospel is that through Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, all power was given unto him in heaven and in earth. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. God's reign is here. And if you believe, the kingdom of heaven is within you. When you believe the gospel, God can reign in your heart as he reigns in heaven. God's will can be done in your life as it is done in heaven. By grace through faith, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, can reign in your heart. But one day, in that day, Jesus will come again. Not riding on a donkey this time, but a white horse. His vesture once again dipped in blood, not his own, but the blood of his enemies. This time he's not coming as a servant, he's coming as a king. He's not coming to die, he's coming to reign. He's not coming to save, he's coming to judge. So let the message of Isaiah sink deeply into our hearts these thousand years later. First of all, God will punish the wicked. His punishment will either destroy or purify. It's our choice. Do we wish to be restored? That comes from his grace, not our merits. Do we wish to be saved? It comes from God dealing with your sin. Do we wish to be glorified in that day along with Christ? That does not come by raising up ourselves in pride, but by humbling ourselves before the mighty hand of God and trusting that he'll exalt us in due time. Thank you for listening to our audio preaching podcast. For more information about our ministries, or if you would like to get in contact with us, please visit our website at heritagebaptistcctx.org. May God bless you as you go forward with the gospel this week.